When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lure, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This one was really exciting for me. It's with Adi Joseph, who is actually my boss at the Sporting News. He is the NBA editor for the Sporting News. He's a really smart, talented guy. And I wanted to have him on because he is one of the people I know that is least prone to exaggeration and overreaction to the first couple weeks of the season. And that's a time where you're really in kind of the danger zone of seeing something and really wanting to think that it's the truth and maybe it is maybe it isn't and so we had a a great conversation as many of you have grown to expect and hopefully love from real jam radio it is wide-ranging we talk about a lot of stuff when you don't have a battle plan which the two of us don't that i think that works really well we talk about the lakers we talk about developing players we talk about russell westbrook which is always one of my favorite topics and conversation runs about an hour 20 I think that it's a really fun one. I think that it's something that people will glean something from, and we bounce topics frequently enough, but go into them in enough depth that I think you can really get something from it. So hope you enjoy it, and I loved, absolutely love doing it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, just sitting here in Charlotte in our sporting news offices. What I'm thinking is the best place to start, we're about two weeks in, is what do you think is the biggest story for you at this part of the season? I think it's no question it's Kobe. Kobe's been just all over the map. Sounds like he's actually going to retire, which is fascinating in its own right. You know, he made the comments yesterday. He made two comments, three comments. He seems to make a comment every day. It's hard to keep track of, uh, you know, the Olympic stuff. He wants to play for the Olympics. He really does. If you asked him today, he'd he'd retire. He's not happy with himself, but he also thinks that the younger Lakers players are learning from him and learning from even his bad shots and that that's how they want to learn. Kobe Bryant this season has just been like a fascinating sociological study, and it's, it's amazing to watch from the outside. 
I've said privately before that I think Kobe is the person who my opinion of him, and I mean this in not really as a basketball player, but just dealing with him has changed the most since I started covering basketball. And a lot of that ties in with what you're talking about is that the way he deals with the media, particularly as an older player, because that's when I came into the league, is just fascinating. You know what he does that is, you almost wish every athlete was like it, but you also are kind of glad every athlete isn't as scripted, is Every time he speaks to the to the press, he says at least one interesting thing. Mm-hmm. He it's almost like he knows before it even comes out of his mouth what our next headline is going to be, and that means that he is constantly feeding the unending need of Mamba Army to have content to devour, which is just the best thing for an internet editor like myself <laughs> because we never run out of Kobe stuff. And it's so unlike so many other players who really struggle when they're just surrounded by the mass media. But I think because Kobe has had so much experience since he's been 18 years old, he's been surrounded by the L.A. media and the most intense media group in the, in the country and for the NBA, that he is, he's prepared himself over every step on how to reach this point where he can – do what he, I think, but what I think he likes best, which is sort of shaping narratives on and off the court. Yeah, shape, he's always talking about that. Yeah, shaping narratives is exactly where I was going to go with that. I think that's the thing that's most interesting about the way that he does it is that he is able to combine an authenticity where you feel like he's coming off the cuff with an awareness that everything he says is going to be magnified and factors into his legacy. So certain things like how hard he works and of that nature always get emphasized. So it's kind of like he always knows that that's going to be a part of the story and just make sure that it's in there at least a little bit. Yeah, and, and, you know, he even talks about narratives and storytelling all the time when he's talking about what his post-playing career aspirations are. And you see it. You see it in the way he handles himself. He thinks about how every action affects the storyline as a whole, and he has a much, much broader sense of purpose and view than most athletes would ever admit to even considering because they're all that cliche, that tired cliche of one day at a time, one game at a time, and, and Kobe is definitely not that way. There's, he, he could try to argue it if he wanted to – say his focus was on the next game, but, you know, he's, he definitely is thinking bigger than that. And what I think he deserves a lot of credit for is he was one of the people, in at least in basketball, but I would say probably in American sports, that was able to kind of show that individualism, when used correctly, could move beyond that team speak and that people could embrace that. I think, oh, like, the, I don't think it's hurt the Lakers at all that he's done that. No, I think, I think, First of all, let's be clear here. Any criticism of Kobe on a macro level as as an all-time great, the criticism is, is he number 15 all-time, number 10 all-time, number 5 all-time? That's the criticism we're talking about here. We're not talking about, is he one of the 50 greatest players of all time? That's, he's locked in there. He has had an incredibly successful career. He's, you know, not only won five titles, but made the finals two other times and at every step of the way he's done something incredible his his career point total his having the all-time record and missed shots to say that he's ever been a distraction or a problem you could maybe argue that now at the very end of his career for most of his career he's been a, a 
an incredibly important and good part of the Lakers. And let's let's turn our focus to on the court. And what has struck me is this year is that he just looks he looks more done physically than I'd seen in the last couple of years. And that could get better, you know, that, that could be rest or whatever, or just, you know, getting into some sort of shape. But that has been what's changed my perception of him this year is just that it looks it looks more like what great players look like when they're ready to hang it up. Yeah, and I, he's acknowledged that. You know, he's he's been open on that. And I can't blame him. He's up there. He's at the point now where it's fine to be past your prime. And I think, you know, Peyton Manning's hearing a lot of the same things where people are forgetting that it's okay that athletes get old, and the real problem is when a team doesn't plan for that. It's not Kobe's fault that he's 37 years old. It's the Lakers' fault that they didn't plan for the day that Kobe Bryant was 37 years old all that well. And so I have a really hard time blaming him for a standard aging process. That's a great point, and the only thing I would say, and this isn't to blame him in the slightest, because I, I, I think that if you're offered the money, you, you have it in, within your right to take it, is that the Lakers offered him too much money in terms of yep. if their goal was to be a successful team. And what I've always right. said on that is I will never begrudge a player for taking a, a large salary. The only thing that they can't do is complain about their team being bad. And I don't think he's really complaining about that, but that's the trade-off for me. Yeah. And you're right. He really, I really don't think he has either. You know, even even anonymously, and, and granted, I, I don't know why anyone would ever need to cite sources within Kobe's camp when the guy talks about everything. He has shown some frustrations with certain very specific decisions, particularly pertaining to the coaches, but he has not, not shown frustration with, why didn't you go out and get the guy that I wanted? Because he, he knows he's taking a large chunk of the salary cap. He knows that he's the guy that, you know, should be leading the recruiting pitches. And for better or worse, <laughs> as Dwight Howard proved. And I think he's been somewhat realistic about his expectations. Like like he said, you know, in in that conversation about about the younger players and the younger generation, he, he seems open to the concept of, my role now is being a mentor. My role now is making sure the Lakers' future is good. And then it's hard for me to hate that, even as it's so easy to hate his play because he is he's definitely trying to do too much, even as he can't. And as a part of it also, I think that having a coach that I don't think would ever even ask him to come off the bench allows him to kind of stay in that role and not have to be critical and that that hard decision might not have to be made at all. Yeah. Byron Scott has had some NBA success, so I don't want to say he's an out, outright terrible coach or anything, but I think he was the wrong hire for this team. Uh, he's not the guy to move forward with. He's the guy to move into the now with and I'm a little worried about the long-term ramifications of both Byron's stubbornness involving Kobe and his stubbornness involving the, the way the modern NBA game is played. And, and you know, it's it, ultimately though there, there's one thing to to sort of realize and consider is Jim Buss has a timeline. Whether he and his sister agree on what that timeline is or not, he has a pretty clear-cut timeline that. It's his job and his role in this the family company that that's on the line here. So if he made the bad mistake, that's that's on him more than anything. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And what I would say about Byron Scott is that if if the Lakers' goal is to retain the pick that they now own to Philadelphia for a couple of years, Byron Scott was a great coach to hire. Yeah, yeah, that that top three spot definitely looks a lot more likely than it might have with the ideal coach for this roster. And what's hard for me with the Lakers is that. They have some young players, and I think those young players fit together well, and my great hope for this team was that they would just, every once in a while, just trot out that lineup, you know, have, make sure that D'Angelo Russell, probably Clarkson, Julius Randle, and then whoever else they thought fit, you know, if you wanted to play Nance or would, however you want to do it, have those guys in there and just see how it works, because you need to see what their chemistry is if you're going to evaluate how anybody else fits in with them or if you want to keep all those guys. Yeah, and... You know, the, there is there's certainly some holes. I don't know that Larry Nance projects to be the starting small forward long term. Yeah, I think he's a but, forward. But, or, or even the starting forward because Randall projects there. But the, the, there are some holes there. At the same time, let's say they get that number one pick and they pick a guy like Scott Labissier who, you know, is that shot-blocking, shot-making center that this roster probably could really use. I mean, the future in terms of roster looks pretty good if you're ta- if you're trotting out Russell, Randall, Labissier, Clarkson, Nance, and you know a free agent or two, Kevin Durant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I intentionally on any podcast and radio show I just throw Kevin Durant onto a new team. It's fun. <laughs> I do that too, but it's almost always onto one team. But we'll save that for a later time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you know that's that reality of who they end up with and 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 how they they plan their future. A lot of it is you're right that they, they they do make logical sense. Clarkson and Russell as a backcourt. I'm not sold that Jordan Clarkson's going to ever get that much better because he started kind of old. With that said, if he's playing next to Russell, I think he's a good complement player who can play enough point guard to keep Russell from burning out and also play off the ball, and, and I like that, and I like I like Randall's offensive potential a lot. So, you know, that they have some pieces there. They're not, they're not a lost cause. And something I'll add with Clarkson that I find particularly interesting with Russell is that I think he could fit a role as a starter or off the bench. So basically you think about him as a piece in the rotation, but I don't think he's so good that you have to say, oh, we can't get another guard because that person will conflict with Clarkson. And that's a nice thing to have. It's nice to have a, a piece that can be either the second or third in a rotation because that allows you the flexibility to add something around them. Yeah. Basically, I mean, my message to Lakers fans is you've got some pieces. They may not be the same caliber pieces that the Timberwolves have or the even maybe even the Jazz have because the Jazz have all of their rotation fleshed out. But they've got some pieces, some things to work with, and they haven't had that in a few years. So there's probably more reason to be optimistic right now about the future of the Lakers than there has been since 2011 or so, maybe since 2012, since we first learned that Dwight and Nash would be a disaster. The big question for me with them is just who is going to be the next big free agent to sign with them, and 
I'm, I'm not saying I have any inside information on this. My in, my intuition has been Russell Westbrook for a long time, and I'm still going to stick with that. I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but but whoever it is, that's going to that's what's going to happen because I don't think they can do this just internally. I think they can they can get solid, but even if it's like a Greg Monroe level player, they're going to need a, an infusion at least of that level, but probably two guys at that level or more to really make them let's say relevant again, as opposed to on the periphery. Yeah. They they definitely need one more one more super duper star or something, but maybe Russell is that guy. I mean, I loved Russell in the draft, and I think he started to show some signs. So he's a great passer. Like that that was yeah. something I noticed in summer league was that there there are a couple different components of passing. One is vision, you know, what can you see? Then another one is I, I guess I would call it execution, which is if you see it, can you get it there? And what yep. makes him stand out, and Moutier is very good at this too. Both those guys, compared to some of the players who came in recently, is they're both very good in both those things. Yeah, and that um, that helps. There was a play while well, he was at Ohio State last year, where Russell is standing about five feet behind the college three-point line, so Steph Curry territory, and sees a player. I believe it was Sam Thompson cutting to the basket. But the the middle of the the, the, the crowded part of the, de- the the defense was crowded in the middle, like college defenses always are. And Thompson's cutting, and Randall throws a pass with crazy spin on it. That literally, it's a bounce pass that spins around a defender directly into Thompson's hands. But because this is a college game, Thompson almost seems surprised to have such a perfect pass and ends up missing a layup. And it was brutal to watch him miss that layup, but it was kind of astounding to see him just even be able to, to see Russell be able to deliver that that kind of pass. And that's Rubio-esque. So. Yeah, Ruby, Rubio's, a, Rubio's a good comparison in, in, in terms of vision and ability. I'm a little bit worried about his ability to create separation, but if you have the passing instincts he has, that'll carry you a decent ways. You know, I think that's enough to, to, to do some things, and I hope that he can get the ball in his hands enough this season that we actually get to see it. Yeah. So I, I think I, that he will. I was thinking a, a transition here is what team have you had the most enjoyment watching this year? So far, that's an interesting question because I'm not always the Warriors. For instance, I get bored sometimes watching them because by the end of the game, it's just terrible and they're just up by a million points. So that they're not the answer, despite the you know very aesthetically pleasing style. They're not my answer. I actually have really enjoyed watching the Detroit Pistons this year because I've always like Drummond, and I, I like the way he plays, and I'm just stunned to see Reggie Jackson sort of committing to being a facilitator and a smart player, and uh, it's nice to see. It's nice to see a guy evolve like that. So I, I guess maybe the, the Pistons are, are my pick for the team I've enjoyed the most. I've also just in, always enjoyed the, the Cavs, and Kevin Love's resurgence, too. It's been great. Those two are on the list. It's amazing that these were saying Eastern Conference teams. And the other one that I would add in there is the Orlando Magic. And the reason for me with that is one of my favorite things to watch in basketball. It's part of the reason I think I like so much bad basketball is I like it when a super when super athletic players kind of play with unbridled enthusiasm. And that's really what Aaron Gordon is. To a point that's what Hazoni is, but really that's what Aaron Gordon is just every second of his life. And that's been and that's been awesome. I mean that's yeah. 
that team is just so much fun. They're going to need some work to make everything fit, but their defense has been a lot better this year. And what I see from them is, oh, okay, they have some guys now, and they just need it all to fit together. You know, the the Hennigan plan, it was so fascinating, and he probably drafted against my type more than almost any other almost any other GM, so it was hard for me to like necessarily be overly enthusiastic because I looked at all of their guys and thought, okay, really high effort guy with low ceiling, really high effort guy with low ceiling, really high effort guy with low ceiling. They just kept taking those players. And Hazonia, I, one of the reasons I loved his pick was because he's a high effort guy with a very high ceiling. He was finally a risk. Hennigan was taking explicitly intentionally taking safer players. And, and, you know, Oladipo was a junior in college. You know, he, he as good as he was last season in the second half, he was also, you know, significantly older than we usually see a second year player. So I wasn't necessarily crazy about the magic's drafting plan over recent years, but in seeing the final product and the way they stuck with and developed some of those players, I like what they have. And I am, I still sort of think that they might need a, a, a true – like if you replaced Vucevic with Carl Towns, you know, of course we'd be talking about an amazing team uh, in future. But there's still that question of do they have that superstar-level potential player, and Hazonia, maybe he can be that. Hazonia can be that. And I also – I'm such a big believer in, in interior defense that I it's hard for me to think that a team with – Vucevic can be a reliable defensive team, though we've seen Steve Clifford do that with Al Jefferson and the, and the Hornets, so it can yeah, happen. De- Dwayne Dedman, though, you're a USC guy, right? Oh no, you're a UCLA guy. I'm, I'm a UCLA. No, I like De- I like Dedman though. Like my 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 antagonism towards USC does not extend to their players unless they give me a reason to after they're gone. Uh, all right. Well, um, that Dwayne all, Dedman that- has been very good for them defensively yeah, he's been great. under Skiles and. Uh, He's been a very interesting player to watch over the years because it always, I mean, Sports Illustrated did a massive feature on him, and at one point when he was at USC, he, it seemed like he was going to be a first-round pick, maybe a lottery pick, maybe a top-ten guy, and he never produced on that level. And so it's nice to see a guy like that kind of crack an NBA, seriously crack an NBA rotation. It's in my brain that he and DeAndre Jordan were kind of that high-end, fringy prospect at the same time, but I might be wrong on the timeline. I think Devin was a little after Jordan, and Jordan left after his freshman year. That was the yeah. big difference. Jordan left while there was still an air of mystery, and and uh, Deadman let himself stay until he proved that he wasn't a per- super productive college player. So, one of the one of those lessons for me: if you if you think you can be a first, if you think you're a first round pick, just go. Just go. Get the guaranteed money. <laughs> the other thing with the Magic too that I wanted to bring up was the whole concept of. Giles on that team is so interesting because he can be a very valuable coach for a year or two. He can instill major defensive principles that stick with players. So it'll be very interesting to see if they let him ride out this job until he does what he's done in every job he's ever had and messes something up or steps on someone's foot. And, you know, I, I hope, I hope that either he's learned how to deal with people or, that they move on fast enough to not blow the potential of this core because we've seen that with Skiles in the past. 
I think that's a great point, and there are a few coaches like that that I think are just so much better at the first step in a rebuild than every other step. I would have Scotty Brooks in that category as well, and it would be great. I understand why it doesn't happen. It would be great if we could ever have a system that, or GMs or however it would work, that would understand that and embrace that, but the problem is the way that negotiations work, it's just impractical. Coaches are getting paid outrageous amounts of money these days. And they're demanding five-year commitments. So we're talking guys getting five years, $25 million. You don't want to fire them after two if they've done a decent job. You don't want to fire them after three. You don't typically, you know, we, we, we have started seeing more coaches have their contracts expire and simply not get renewed, even if they were okay. And, you know, that's fine. Like you said, a lot of, a lot of times what you need in baseball, it's even more true, but in, in basketball too, a, co- a new coach comes in and fixes the one thing that was broken. You, you know, you, you, there are risks involved in that, but that can happen, and that certainly happened with the Warriors where, you know, Hoiberg said, all right, we're going to cut down on the floppy action, we're going to keep the defense more or less the same, and we're just going to teach these guys how to be more efficient, and that alone, those minor changes were what made the Warriors into champions last year. Believe it or not, for a lot of people don't realize this, in terms of schemes – they were not all that different from what the from the Mark Jackson, especially on defense. Well, and the other hu- the other huge thing they did is that he got partially by luck, but mostly by confidence that they got away from playing David Lee as much. And their their defense. Well, that was injury, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was injury. I think my instinct. I've never talked with him about it. I also don't think he would ever say it on the record. I think that Kerr would have gotten there pretty soon even if it hadn't yeah. happened, because sure. Draymond played so well with the with the starting group anyway. I feel like that would have been the case, but, yeah, would it have taken 10, 15, 20, 30 games? Maybe. Yeah, and would it have cost them some of the early chemistry that they built that, you know, it, so many things can happen. A lot of everything went right for the Warriors last year, and um, I think uh, that's not luck. That's that's good strategy and good management from their team, too. You know, the the... Both Lakeubs and Schlenk and Myers and Kerr and Jerry West, they all deserve credit, you know, and they all gave each other credit, and that was one of the nice things they did. One other we, we team we talked about briefly in the favorites that I think something that warrants discussion is I think we're underrating how great Cleveland's defense has been. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, they're still in the top ten, but what I've talked about it with Nate Duncan on his show is what's remarkable about it is they don't have a lot of what would be considered defensive talent right now because guys like Amon Shumpert are hurt, and yet they're still performing at a high level, and if they can do that, I think that's what makes them a real serious title contender. Yeah, they they don't have a lot of defensive talent, but what they do have is a far better coach than people want to admit. First of all, they have Tristan Thompson, who I think has, you know, people just don't get what Tristan Thompson does. I get the feeling that there's a lot of people, fans, writers, et cetera, who don't get that Tristan Thompson, first of all, if Tristan Thompson was 6'11", he'd be not only a max guy, he'd be an unstoppable force. Uh, he'd be better than DeAndre Jordan, to put it that, that way. He's he's a pretty good rim protector, not a great shot blocker anymore because he's kind of short, but he he has the athleticism and the quickness to be the trigger point on a lot of what they do defensively when he's on the court. And, you know, that's why him and Mozgov worked. Him and Mozgov can play together, which is so unlike the modern NBA, 
I mean, he's not even – neither of them has anywhere near the offensive skill that Randolph and Gasol have or that Cody Zeller and, and uh, Al Jefferson have. And yet they can play together because they're so good defensively when you put them on the court together that, you know, they, they really seem to, to click there. And David Blatt has done a good job of using them. So Thompson being underrated is a big part of why, in my opinion, the Cavs have been so good defensively. He's also, as an offensive rebounder, which gets more attention, his offensive role I think people have a yeah. better better understanding of, yeah. is that if you reach a certain level at anything in the NBA and teams have to game plan for it, there is an incredible value to it. And yeah. his offensive rebounding has reached that. And so that works as a center and as a power forward that teams just have to plan differently. And, I mean, if the Warriors had trouble adjusting to it, everybody in the Eastern Conference had trouble adjusting to it. And... What I love about the Cavs is that they have those three guys who are all very good in their own way, and they don't have to rely on any one of them, whether they're hot or cold, because they can all be a little bit inconsistent. I would say Love is probably the most consistent of the three when he's healthy. But, you know, if if Mozgov's not feeling it for a game, then, then you can phase out. The problem with that when they faced the Warriors in the playoffs was they didn't have Love, so they couldn't do those things that they were doing during the regular season once they got Mozgov. Yeah, Moscow's actually probably been their worst, definitely been their worst big man this year. He has not looked all that great, and he has a lot of money on the line this season, so he probably needs to pick that up. But he is, in a way, even though he's the starting center, he's far less essential than what Thompson is, um, in my opinion. And I, the Thompson love lineups can, can be very, very dangerous at times. I think a lot of that is Moscow still coming back from injury. I mean, yeah, I, I'm yeah. such a believer in his, and what what we saw at, for, for what his impact was on their defense last year, I have to trust that more than when I know he's recovering from something, because we've already seen the precedent. Yeah, that's true. You know who's been great for them? Matty Dellavedova. Yeah, Matthew <laughs> continues, Dellavedova. Continues to do it. He's such a hard guy for me, because I have an exact feeling on him, and Everybody thinks that either either overrates him or underrates him, and that's that he's a very he's a very good effort defensive player who should not really be running an offense too often. And so for certain teams, that's a really nice thing to have. Like I would love to use him actually there's I've I've always thought that a guy like let's say Patrick Beverly I've there's a, a piece I wrote for Hardwood Broxism where I talked about kind of the idea of counterweights. And I think that what Delvidova does best is he takes opposing point guards off their game and so I would just use him in spots especially when you have LeBron James on your team just to mess with the other team yeah he I mean he's definitely great at that and I think we all know that he was I mean he proved that that much it's hard to argue that the way he played in the playoffs last year with that said right now he's sitting on you know six assists a game he's sitting on 39 percent from three he, it's it's hard to knock him right now. He is playing really well off their bench. And Mo Williams, who Mo Williams has been, has had like a career resurrection in the last year. Uh, and I don't know that a lot of, like he had the 50-point game last year, 51 points, whatever it was. I think it's 52 because uh, that's 52. the number he wears. It was, and that's his number, yeah. yeah. 52 points last year for the Timberwolves. And he got traded to Charlotte and basically almost put the, it was at that moment that the Hornets, reinserted themselves into the playoff conversation. And it was basically when Kemba Walker came back and Moe's minutes went down that Charlotte fell out of the playoff conversation. Um, 
And now he's been really solid. Like he is playing really well in Kyrie's stead, and and they needed that because there's a trust level between LeBron and Mo, and they needed the, the consistent veteran presence. And I don't think they really wanted to wanted to put a starting role onto Delavadova, who who like I said is becoming a very good backup point guard. But certainly Mo Williams has been a a very important player for the Cavs. Um, and, and, and Della Vadova has too, and they've, they've man, more than managed to do it without their two best guards, which is impressive to me. And obviously they're missing Kyrie, but I think that the Shumpert part of this equation is, is underrated because not only is he their best, their best guard defender, but he does a lot of positives without taking too much away, which I think is really important on a team that has the star power they have. Yeah, he learned that. Anyone who saw him at Georgia Tech would be stunned to hear that assessment of his game now because he tried to play point guard all the time at Georgia Tech, and it did not go well. But, you know, right now, I think one of the biggest reasons that they've they've been able to weather that is because Richard Jefferson's hitting half his threes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and if Richard Jefferson's going to keep hitting half his threes, no, one's, no one in the East even stands a chance against the Cavs. So that's a... Another another reason to be scarily optimistic about the Cavs. They've played ridiculously well without their two best guards. And there's such there's such a dangerous playoff team in the East because I, I like to think that individual talent first of all, rotations condense, so then you think that bench depth matters a little bit less except at the top end where it matters more. And also star power matters more both in terms of calls and just in terms of who can take over games. And I think you can make an argument that the three individual players most capable of taking over a game in the Eastern Conference are all on that team. That's bold. Uh, I probably would put Paul George back up there. Um, I've been pretty impressed with him. Yeah, he's he's great. I, I think it, and, George and Love. I think are that that's that's the conversation for three. I unless I'm missing yeah, somebody like Porzingis. You know, John Wall can take over a game, but he's not. That's not his ideal role. His ideal role is individually taking over a game like that. That's not John Wall's ideal role. He he more can take over a game by just dominating the pace and getting his teammates open. But yeah, I mean Carmelo certainly scoring wise can take over a game. But I I would put I I don't have a problem with someone saying that a fully healthy Kyrie and a fully healthy Love are the second and third best players in the East, and that's crazy. And then on top of that, they actually have real depth, and they're getting real contributions out of Richard Jefferson and Matthew Dellavedova and Mo Williams that just make them even scarier than they were last year, I think. And I sincerely doubt they use it because of the heinous tax ramifications it would have, but if they want to, they still have the Brendan Haywood trade exception to add another piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, they have the full 10.5, or have they lost some of that? I think they still have the whole thing. Yeah, that, that's that's. If anyone gives them a player worth ten point five million dollars for a trade exception, the Warriors should file an appeal. <laughs> well, that's that's like what I was saying about how the um, how the entire Western Conference should pay off Portland if Brooklyn ever buys out Joe Johnson, just to make sure that he doesn't end up on the Clippers. <laughs> Joe Johnson on the Clippers would be uh, well. I mean, that would just give them a full. 48 minutes of a Paul Pierce equivalent because they're, you know, at this point in their careers, I think they they do similar things, and I've certainly thought the Clippers look their best with Pierce on the court. Yeah, they're. I mean, Joe Johnson doesn't fix their biggest problem. Obviously, there are better players out there than than 
than Joe Johnson for that. I just think, especially depending if they used him to to be an anchor on that second unit, I don't think that's how they would use him, but that would be an amazing use too because they're doing that. Have you watched much of the Wolves yet? I have. I've watched the Wolves the last two days, and I, I actually saw most of them almost giving away that lead to the Hawks, but then, I mean, ultimately, Carl Anthony Towns is just mind-blowingly good. <laughs> He, what has stuck out to me, and I, I'm working on a piece on this, is he's so patient for a teenage big man. Like, he, he'll just sit there in the, po- he'll get the ball in the post, and he's not gonna say, okay, I need to get the ball up right now. He's like, okay, I have a couple seconds, I can, you know, I can do this, I can wait for the guy to jump, and then I'll put it in. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've already, alright, so, the current thing that people are talking about that I've seen various articles on, and Timberwolves bloggers, specifically Patrick Fenelon, uh, are raving about is his passing. But I think that just you I think your point is much more accurate. He's good at everything. He is a great passer. Yes, he's a great ball handler. He's a great shooter. He's he's got it all and he doesn't rush it. And when you don't rush it, you inherently are going to make better passes because pat like there's no skill that's more important um for a patient player than passing, but he doesn't ever rush it. He feels he's very confident in his own game and his own skills. I don't think he ever, like, would take a shot that he thinks he might miss. So, in that way, he's, he's so, you know, just impossible to guard because he feels, because he can do everything and he knows he can do everything and he's 19 years old. And I'm, I'm gonna sound like I'm hyperbolizing here. I think he has been better as a rookie than Anthony Davis was as a rookie. I'm not saying he'll be better long term. What I've seen, yeah, I think, I think you're right. And what what he's I he's more think mature, that, right? He's more yeah. mature. And what's what's different about him than almost any big man I've I've seen, and obviously we're early in, but I watched him at Kentucky too, is a lot of the players you see that have some of the attributes he has, one thing that he that he possesses, which many of them do not, is a kind of a creativity or a a, a kind of a humanness which totally works, which is that He'll make the right decision. He's not a robot, so he's not predictable in that sense. You know, like if he kind of sees a guy leaning one way, he'll make an adjustment. He'll do something different. On the defensive end, if there's a play that, you know, he, he needs basically all of his athleticism to get to, he will use that enthusiasm and that energy to get there. So he's not this like technically sound, but not, you know, kind of like if you want to think about it as a robot, he's, he does all of it well and his instincts are incredible. Yeah. You know, he reminds me, he reminds me a lot of David Robinson in his prime because Robinson had every skill and knew exactly how to apply them. And Robinson ended up averaging 29 points. David Robinson, I don't know how many guys have done this, but he led the league in blocks, rebounds, and points in different seasons, which is an insane thing to do. And, you know, Shaq, I'm sure, did it. I'm sure Kareem did it. I, I don't I don't know for sure if anyone else did. I'm sure Wilt did it because Wilt had to have done it. He did everything. Well, they weren't blocks then. Oh, and that's if true. There were allegedly Russell was averaging 25 a game. If you believe, <laughs> if you believe his hagiographers, hey, Bill Russell never let a shot go up without blocking it. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> with that said, you know it's incredible to watch this kid who plays with so much poise because he's 19 and David Robinson was five years away from entering the NBA at 19. So to say that a 19-year-old reminds me of David Robinson is 
insane praise because it's only going to get better, and he's his potential is extremely high. I, the only thing that I will say negative is, and it's not a huge negative, is he doesn't have the same kind of unbelievable surreal fluidity that separates Davis and Hakeem. Young Hakeem was just so fluid, and Anthony Davis has some of that, and it's and Kevin Kevin Garnett had some of that, and Towns doesn't quite have that because if he did, he'd have literally every skill. And something that I, I've never been able to fully fully talk about, but that I think is really important, is what I call connective tissue, and it's basically like what makes your game fit together. So for LeBron, for almost all guys, it, it's basketball intelligence, instincts, all that kind of stuff, and. That makes Town special, and I haven't seen as much of it from Andrew Wiggins, but I've seen more this season than I saw last year. Wiggins is a, a very – he's a guy who, when he's in his zone, is a terrifyingly good scorer, and when he's not, will let himself sort of disappear. And what's funny about that sort of innate ability is it actually might be good for the Timberwolves given that they have another superstar player, a better player, frankly, and I think Towns is already a better player than Wiggins, I think it could be good that it, that Wiggins Wiggins has shown and showed at Kansas he's not going to force the issue when the shot's not falling. And that could be end up what, be what separates him from some of the more frustrating score-first wings that we've seen, the Rudy Gays and the even you know, Danny Granger – are you, are you not going to say Dion Waiters? Because I assumed you were going to say Dion Waiters. Oh, no, he, he's a million times better than Dion Waiters. But I'm talking, you know, Paul George made his, his bones on offense largely because he was a great ball handler. Like Rudy Gay, D- Danny Granger, Wiggins, they're great scorers. And they're not great shooters the way George was too. But, you know, there, there's a slight separation there. And those guys can be very dangerous to build around. Because if their shots aren't falling, they'll still take them. But I think Wiggins is a little smarter than those guys, and and maybe maybe has a better understanding of when my shots not take not falling, I can give the ball up. I'm okay doing that. He still need, his percentages still aren't reflecting that. But that's that's one thing I like about Wiggins. He can either take over a game or he doesn't mind sort of not forcing the issue, which is good when you're playing with Towns. And something else that I love is that they have Ricky Rubio there, who I think is deft enough both from a basketball standpoint and from a personality standpoint, which is underrated in this whole thing, to 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 see where those players are and to make sure that they get in the right balance. Yeah, Rubio is um, – I've been arguing he's underrated for a while, and he's. It, I hope he stays healthy. That's all you can say about a guy like that. You know, he hasn't had a chance to ever show, and people already write him off as a bust because he happened to be taken, you know, after taken before Steph Curry, which is an unreasonable standard. Let's be honest. And uh, you know, the the, the Timberwolves probably should have taken Curry with the Flynn pick, but imagine Curry and Rubio. That I think they'd have been able to figure something out. They, they could have also the... gotten Cousins the next year. They could have theoretically yeah. gotten Curry, Rubio, Love, and Cousins. I've thought about yeah, it more it, than a few times. Yeah. They're not quite Trailblazers level, but they definitely have some regrets in their uh, NBA draft history over there in Minnesota. What, one of the incredible things about Minnesota is, so Rubio's been in the league for a while now, and also he you know, got drafted when he was young. He just turned 25. Yep. And I, I thought that would be a nice transition into a conversation you and I had offline today, which was that another guy who is shockingly young is Giannis. 
because we yeah. were talking about the best players in the league who were under the age of 21, and I brought up Giannis because I realized frantically that he's still 20. Yeah, it's that's that's an insane thing to think about. Um, there there are you know the one and done era doesn't produce teenagers. I mean, doesn't produce high schoolers. But I think it seems to be producing more players entering the league as teenagers, as 19-year-olds. Um, and I, I haven't looked up the numbers on that, but you know, toward the very end of the one-and-done era, that last year there were an insane number of players who declared out of high school. But one-and-dones were not nearly as popular back then. Now it seems like everyone who would have declared out of high school, everyone who would have declared after one year of college, and some more guys are declaring after one year of college. And so we're, we have that, like a bizarrely young group of stars that, that I'm, I'm not sure uh, I can remember as many really good players under 25 as we have right now. And one other great thing about a collection of those guys, not all of them, is that the ones particularly from parts of Europe, incidentally Giannis does not fit this group, have played against really high-level competition. And so you have Christoph Porzingis and Mario Hazonia, who are both really young, but have been playing against men, professional athlete men, for years now. Yeah, or you have a Rudy Gobert who was in a, like from age like 14 or 15, has been in a basketball camp, like an uh, uh, academy, where he was learning at a much more granular and repeated level than our American players uh, how to play basketball. And, and so what's funny about Gobert is like he was six, nine when he was recruited to, or six, eight when he was recruited as a 15 year old, 14 year old. And, you know, certainly his game has evolved as he's become seven, one, but you can see some of that because a guy like Gobert, if he was American, he would not be able to handle the ball as well. And that's such an important part of the jazz offense. And the jazz are another crazy young team, by the way, <laughs> you know, that's those, those little things, you know, Porzingis, not only having a mastery of his athleticism, which is somewhat rare for a European player, but also having a mastery of his handle at his size is, is a very big advantage. And um, sometimes our players don't develop that properly, develop all of their well-rounded skills because so much of what we put our players through is games instead of skill development. Considering how bad we are at developing young big men, shouldn't we just teach all our young guys to be guards and just some guys just end up being bigger? And and if you look at our best big men, like some of them were, or, or at least small forwards, you know, put them on the perimeter, let them handle the ball and, and learn that. And if they grow to be bigger, then we'll teach them how to block shots. But yeah, there's, there's a, definitely a problem. And if you look at the young big men in the league, a whole lot of the best ones are, are, are European. It is concerning. It, it is worrisome. And you take a player like uh, Derek Favors, who who I profiled this off season, and Derek was a prodigy big man with ridiculous athleticism at age 14 or 15 in Atlanta. He played, you know, like any big man in would for an NBA level, even though he was so young that he should have been developing other skills. So it took him a long time to become anything more than a dunker at the NBA level. Now he is, but you know he's also five years into his NBA career. Does that develop better if he's in a more granularly focused skill academy the way European players are, the way his teammate, who's actually less than a year younger than him in Rudy, developed those handles, and now he's in year 
year two and he's got them, or year three and he's got them. You know, it's it's a very different mentality on how to develop players. And it also gives you such a better platform for getting better as you age because it's something it's something that you can build on as opposed to like let's say. I'm not trying to be overly critical of him, but Dwight Howard... Dwight Howard, people said he didn't have post moves. That's not true. He has post moves. I just didn't trust his handle and his passing and things like that. And if he had worked on developing that when he was 16, 17, 18, then you have that and you can get a little bit better at it too. But then you can do all the other stuff on top of it. Yeah, and we've seen... Just look at the way Tim Duncan developed... Because Tim Duncan sort of developed in a bubble... Tim Duncan's entire life has been in this bizarre little bubble and a completely unreplicable standard. But, uh, you know, compare Tim Duncan to basically his his same generation players, and Tim Duncan's still very relevant at 39 when most mo- most other big men that he was going against when he was 25 are were out of the league by the time they were 30 or 33, you know, or, or at least mostly irrelevant. And, and Kevin Garnett's another one who develop those perimeter skills like we talked about. Anthony Davis developed perimeter skills like we talked about, but a lot of American big men don't. And I think you're right that that can have a trickle-down effect and make a player more relevant as they get older. And I think that's also a big part of where the league is going because there there's a growing thing. Zach Lowe has called it the playmaking four. I firmly believe that offensive role and height are completely separated. I think I, I think that I, I I mean height is non-determinative of offensive role is probably the way to put it, and we're moving more in that direction. You know, you have a guy like Kevin Durant who physically is probably if he gained a little weight would be more naturally a four just in terms of his size, but he likes to be on the perimeter. He's one best one of the best shooters in the league, one of the best shooters of all time, and so that's where he is. Dirk is another example of that, and if you're going to have like a guy like Shabazz Muhammad, who's a six foot six guy who likes to post up smaller guys, that's fine too. And that combined versatility, I think, is where the league is going long term. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to un- understate the role of guys like Magic and Larry Bird and. There was some of that in the earlier days, too. Sure. Uh, with that said, you know, it's interesting, too. Like, you know, Paul Millsap's a good example. Um, Paul was the nation's leading rebounder in college. All he did was post up and grab offensive rebounds. If he didn't get the ball for a scoring chance in the post, he'd grab the offensive rebound because his teammates always missed because he went to Louisiana Tech for some reason. So Paul spent three years at college doing nothing but post-ups and rebounding. Then he spent his first, like, three or four years in Utah doing nothing but post-ups and rebounding. Then finally, you know, and, and he, he also did some pick and roll because it was Jerry Sloan and, and then um, Ty Corbin running the same system. So he got some exposure out on the perimeter, but not a lot. Slowly he starts taking more long jumpers as he, as he goes on in Utah, developing his handles a little better, now he's on. Did you see his crossover against the the Timberwolves? The, I mean, oh, behind the back, yes, I did. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's right. It was behind the back. I mean, can you fathom Paul Millsap when he was two sixty five and playing post for the for the Jazz? Can you fathom him even trying that? Because he's he's completely evolved his game, and you know, you just wonder if Paul Millsap had been in a more progressive system from an earlier age how good would he be at those things now? And the answer probably is he'd probably be a whole lot more polished on the perimeter, and he's already really good. So 
you know, it, it, if you teach the right mentality toward basketball at an earlier age, it, it could be a major help. But, you know, coaches at every level, for whatever reason, are their number one goal is largely going to be to win, not to develop talent. That's true, and I, I think that's a big reason why I'm such a big supporter of more the European style in, in terms of sports, and it gets into an issue we can talk about if you want, that I, I feel like sports is more analogous to entertainers in that sense, and so if you're, you know, if you're training singers and all that, you're not necessarily trying to produce a, a record now, you want to, you know, you want to have the best, you want to have, try to build the best artist, you want to try to do that with, the, with any entertainment field, and you're trying to develop that, and the problem is, as you said, it's nobody's goal in, until they're a pro to make them the best professional they can be. And as we're seeing, maybe with Byron Scott, it might not even be your goal of your pro coach. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to um, be that negative, but I'll say this, that certainly there are some issues with the way we develop players, and uh, I, I do agree there. And I think that Giannis, going back to Giannis, what Giannis does so well is everything. Literally, he has... Except shooting. He's even, he, he's even shooting a little better this year, though. That's true. And what Giannis does well is everything, because he was taught how to do everything. Because even though he wasn't you know, going against the same level of competition that Hazonia was when he was in Europe, um, you know, he, he learned the entire base of skill sets that a basketball player needs, because he was never sort of pigeonholed. And the guy is now 6'11", and if you believe, he grows two inches every offseason, it seems like. So, you know, the guy is now 6'11", and he can do a bit of everything, and that's a scarier basketball player. It, You know, the flip side to that, and, and this might be a transition point, is there's a lot of specialization in the league now, and are players learning – specialization at any level i don't know about that either because you know kyle corver was a superstar at creighton he was not a spot-up shooter he did everything so where where are players learning specialization tony allen was a do-it-all guy at at oklahoma state and became a defensive stopper once he got to the pros and i I would say it feeds the other way too because a guy that i watch a lot and think about a lot is clay thompson and i think if clay thompson had a better base in terms of ball handling that would serve his shooting so much better because teams would be wouldn't be able to defend him in the way they defend him now. Yeah, sure, but I mean Clay was a superstar at Washington State too. Um, yeah, he was he was a do it all guy. He wasn't just like stand in the corner and drill shots. I do think though that we are seeing a little bit of it. Like Troy Daniels um, is is on the Hornets with a guaranteed deal, even though he wasn't even a good college, a particularly good college player, and he wasn't even a particularly great D league player even. And yet he did one thing, he focused on that one thing, and he spent, he spent, you know, he's like 23, 24 years old right now, and he's spent the last like seven or eight years at least, if not more than that, of his life devoting himself to three-point shooting. And so you wonder, like, I mean, are we going to see kids who sort of the punter, the, the raise your kid to be a punter and he'll have a job for 20 years in the NFL? Are we going to see that mentality toward three-point shooting? Are we going to see that mentality toward rim protection where players just say, I, that's what I do, that's the only thing that I do, that's what I focus on, you know, I want to be the next DeAndre Jordan, I don't want to be the next DeMarcus Cousins. So is that a good path, or is that where we want to go? Because a guy is, happens to be pretty good at that, at a very early age we start, 
you know, focusing him on becoming the best possible pro in that narrow role? Or do we want to have everyone have a diverse skill set? What might help those two things in particular is that they're both fun to do. And as crazy as it sounds, a great way to predict what could be specializations is things. think about the parts of basketball that a 12-year-old kid would want to do. And yeah, shooting so jacking three, up threes is fun. Jacking yeah. up threes is fun. Blocking shots is fun, especially if you're a big, tall guy, which I yeah. never was. So yeah. I, I think that I, I used I, to be and then stopped growing, man. I was, I was 5'11 as a seventh grader. See, I, gra- I graduated. I graduated middle school at five two. I graduated high school at five six. So, gotcha. yeah, I, I was not. I was not in that phase. But speaking generally, I mean, I think that what you want to do is you want to you want to give everybody a certain base, and then beyond that, I think you encourage you encourage whatever a guy is good at and whatever they want to enjoy at a young age. And then if they're going to be a professional, then you, then you change their development a little bit, you know, but what I want to see in that same vein is, are there people who are these like insanely lights out shooters at, let's say like a lower level college that can do nothing else that currently are not getting on the floor? Like, are we missing people right now that can do these things at a level that would be good enough to make it? You know, we have, there is a bit of a, who's the guy from Baylor? Uh, Perry Jones? No, the guy who can really shoot, from, who played for oh, Baylor. Oh, so not Canadian. Perry Jones. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll come up with his name. But, you know, there, there is a certain degree of you need to, Brady Heslip. Brady Heslip, okay. Brady Heslip can shoot a, a, as well as Steph Curry. Maybe, maybe not quite as well, but like really close to as well as Steph Curry. And he can't really do the other stuff that Steph Curry does, and he's six one. And at a certain point, you need to still be a good basketball player to be a good NBA player. And right. I, I actually did a big story on three and D specialists, and I talked with all of the like uh, Corver, Willie Green, just a whole bunch of players who who specialize in that. Uh, Martel Webster, uh, Garrett Temple like seven or eight guys, and and the one thing they all said was, bottom line, you're not going to even get noticed if you're not an all-around good basketball player. So what they said was, you should never view yourself as a specialist. You should always accept your specialist role if that's what you're given, and because you won't get noticed, because you won't get put on the map, and it won't matter how many threes you drain in, you know, uh, in a college game or even in a D-league game. Which Heslip went dropped 13 last season in the D League. It won't matter if if teams don't think they can trust you on defense, or if teams don't think that if you get the ball, you're going to be able to do a little bit of dribbling with it if necessary. You know, that's again, Kyle Korver was a superstar at Creighton. He sometimes brought the ball up. He consistently was given the ball in mid-range situations, in post-ups, in in all sorts of situations because he was great at that. He was just better than everyone else in the in the entire Missouri Valley Conference. Doug McDermott is another guy, and uh, Doug McDermott is going to end up being a three-point specialist at the NBA level, but in college he was the national player of the year and did every single thing that you could imagine on offense. So there is sort of a uh, do you risk over-specializing, and uh, there is a ceiling to, to a player who specializes too much, I think. And, and there's also there's a value to having the NBA full of players who were the best players on basically every team they'd ever been on is that they should have a higher capability. And the player I think of with that is Wesley Matthews, 
Wes was a guy who I think could always do more than he was asked to do, but he was so good at what he did that, that eventually he was asked to do more and more until this year when he's shooting like 60% threes. But he, <laughs> I think that, that he is a great story for how you can develop that trust while being an NBA player as opposed to kind of, it kind of he kind of did it in, in reverse in a way, but that can happen too if you're good enough. Yeah. And Leslie Matthews is, is a funny story because Leslie Matthews was really the third best player on his college team for his first couple seasons at Marquette because they had Dominique James and they had Jarrell McNeil who kind of overshadowed him in the backcourt. But what Matthews did was he, he kind of took that and learned how to play a, a minimal role and make his impact felt on both defense and with his shooting. And that's exactly what his first roles in the NBA with the Jazz and then with the the, the Blazers were where he he has that super quick jump shot and is so strong for a, a shooting guard. He was able to carve out a niche that he probably wouldn't have had the chance to if he had been asked to be a college star, you know, in a in a lead ball handling role the whole time that he maybe wouldn't have have developed those skills at the same level. And that's that's kind of the complexity in this balance of developing a well-rounded full basketball player versus specializing when you when you feel like that's your best chance to become a pro and and so I do agree with you that the best path is probably to to teach everyone the full base of skills and then turn them into specialists when it feels right are there any skills that you still think are, are underdeveloped by like going into the league like that you think like is there I, I think for me just fun just dribbling is something that players should just be able to do more there's a lot of players who can't dribble uh, and not just big men I remember Clyde Drexler used to look at his dribble do you remember this? Yes. Clyde Drexler used to have to look at his own dribble and is one of the 50 greatest players of all time, maybe the fifth best shooting guard of all time, and he couldn't even dribble. So we've come a little bit from that, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, it's there's still definitely a, a, a certain players who have certain skill sets that I think, you know, why are more – point guards not playing defense the way Chris Paul and Patrick Beverly play defense. Not not necessarily expending quite as much energy, because I get that, and I get that not everyone's going to be good at defense. But, you know, we have learned that sort of planting yourself on a guy's hip and just constantly sort of poking them is really effective when you're dealing with a lead ball handler, a guy who has the ball all the time. Why why are there not more young young point guards who maybe aren't quite offensively equipped the way Paul is, who try to defend that way? There does not seem to be a surplus of good point guard defenders. And uh, so on the flip side of dribbling is lead ball handlers are often poorly defended. Why is that still the case when when we have started to see, you know, in Beverly and even Matthew Dellavedova, who we were talking about earlier, a way to defend effectively a lead ball handler who needs the ball in his hands a lot. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that develop more. And that concept could be applied to starters and backups alike. I mean, I think that's that's one of the parts of it. It's obviously, you, to me, you need to have somebody who can run an offense at, at all times. And it's most frequently going to be the smallest guy just because in our system those are the people who have the skills to do it. But 
what you can do to get the other team off their game is still incredibly important, and that's why players like Chris Paul, who can do both, and I would say, ideally, Ricky Rubio, though he defends a little bit differently than that, in my in my opinion, those players are so valuable is that they can do that without sacrificing as much on the other end. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're Rubio or John Wall, you don't need to defend like a gnat. But, but it does seem like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of players who could have NBA chances um, if they were, or, or play more in the NBA if they were not even more skilled defensively, just more aggressive. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like that's a path that people could take and they ch- sort of choose not to or never think about it. I mean, imagine if Eric Bledsoe played with the same intensity that his former teammate Paul did with his athleticism and strength, if he was defending the way Chris Paul does, just a style, even if he doesn't have quite the instincts, he could be an insanely good defender. But, you know, very few players are ever ever even, I, I think, even consider that approach of just, like, and it, it does require a lot of effort, and I get that. I hope Moutier embraces part of that, because he's one of the players who has the physical ability to do it. And a guy who I've been critical, who who gambles too much instead of playing that kind of defense, is Russell Westbrook. Yeah. Well, Russell's, Russell's in a whole other camp, athletically. Um, and as a result, like he could probably play a more John Wall-esque defense, but he definitely does gamble, and the payoff of those gambles is those sort of breathtaking fast break dunks where no one else is even close to him, but he definitely makes some mistakes and he gets embarrassed sometimes. He gets, you know, there was a play, Jeff Teague threw down a reverse dunk on Russell Westbrook and it was like last year. And and I, I, it was straight up Russell's defensive miscue that led Jeff Teague, a guy who doesn't necessarily strike you as anywhere near the strength or athleticism of Russell, although he's a very fast player you know, he burned him, just burned him, and because he used his his awesome hesitation moves, and uh, which he is great at, and made Russell look really bad. And Russ, if he stops, if he plays a more conservative defense and a, a more sort of aggressively physical defense, the way Wall does, I think he could be a, a terror on that end. But it's a little harder when you're asked to shoulder as much of an offensive load as he does. Sure, and I think that Russ's gambling is actually going to become a bigger issue now that in the current OKC roster composition, they have they're playing a guy in Ennis Canner who is less capable of correcting the mistakes. They have. You want to talk about the Thunder because the Thunder are some are an interesting team right now. If you want to talk about they, the Thunder, we'll talk about the Thunder. I think. I mean, I just I can't wrap my head quite around exactly what's going on. I, I was I was looking at the numbers and. You know, ESPN has that estimated wins, estimated wins stat, and <laughs> Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook each account for 2.4 estimated wins added, and that's Cantor accounts for one. So that's right there. Those three players alone are at 4.8, at 5.8, and the team is four and three. So, you know, we are seeing this team, and it, by all accounts, almost everyone on the roster is playing pretty well right now. At least all the key players. Cantor has been terrific in his role, and the team has, you know, been up and down and struggled in a couple close games. And I know Billy Donovan's just learning the NBA, and I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. But I look at their roster, and there's just so much talent, so much more talent than just about any other team has. And at a certain point, you just have to wonder, like, are the is is it gonna 
click? Is it going to fit the way it should? And it's a major issue with them because they, they do have the individually dominant players, but I think that what they've done is they've given teams easier ways to attack them. So one of those is Robertson can't shoot, so you can you know not play a guy on him when you're on defense. And Canner can't play defense, so you can exploit that in pick and rolls and things like that. And while those guys are, are definitely talented basketball players, this gets back into a conversation we're having before, and they are, I would say they are NBA talents, really good teams, particularly if we're starting to talk about a seven-game series, and I think when we're talking about Oklahoma City, we have to, those players are going to be problems. And, yeah. And that, and, Robertson, I'll, I'll say this, though. Robertson has made four of 11 threes. If he can keep up a 36% shooting rate and take maybe one and a half to two a game, like he can maybe keep teams respecting him slightly. But yeah, team. That's that's the point of this is that teams have to respect it because so that means that you have to give him the ball and he has to shoot it because we've seen in the NBA that respect does not always have to be earned because you see guys like Drew Gooden. Drew Gooden gets respect for his deep two game even when he hasn't made one in a week or a month, yeah. or whatever, you know, like, respect is a very convoluted, nebulous thing in the NBA, but you can exploit that to your advantage if the guy's actually hitting stuff and he's wanting to take the shots, but at the same point, because it's slower moving than it maybe you could say, quote-unquote, should be, that can actually make it harder for a team to to reach their full potential. Do you think they're using Ibaka right? His role's changed so much. In the last, really just the last two seasons, his role has, the way he plays basketball is different now. Um, and it's not just the threes, because his threes are actually down this year. His style on defense, his style on offense, he's he's definitely less productive than he was two years ago. And, and I'm sure injuries are a small part of that, but I think it's also a playing style thing. Do you, do you feel like they're using him the right way? No, particularly defensively, I think that his best role is not... Okay, so I'll, the the defensive center archetype that I'll use is a guy like Andrew Bogut. Also, I know him well because I've covered him for years now. He cleans up mistakes, he kind of stays in his spot, and he does that. He's really good at that. There is another type of strong big man defender, which I consider more of a, a freelance position, where it's basically like you you don't have the responsibility of always being there, but if you see something going wrong, you can go over and fix it. It's kind of like if you had a fixer in a company, you know, had somebody who could go around to different departments and try to see what's going on and try to do it. I think that's the ideal defensive role for Serge Ibaka. The problem is, I don't think Adams or Canner, but particularly Canner, is stout enough to do the first role, and that's the most more important one. So they kind of have to have him more as a baseline guy, and that takes away a lot of the variability that makes him so dangerous. Offensively, it, it, it's hard. I, I don't really have a clear sense on really what they want him to be on that end. I think that when, you, when you're playing with Durant and Westbrook, you're always going to be an ancillary option. And when you're an ancillary option, it's always nice to be closer to the perimeter because it just gives them more space to work with. But I, I think that that does reduce his possibility kind of paralleling the defensive end of creating chaos because you can't really do that a whole heck of a lot when you're standing 25 feet out. Exactly. And, you know, and, and the other thing is, I mean, Westbrook loves picks, sure. He, he's, he's very excellent on a pick and roll, but he's not, even on, when he's taking a pick, he's, he's often still looking for his own shot, and Durant doesn't even need them. 
Durant can do whatever he wants, and he's better off with space and probably the best isolation scorer in the league. I don't know why I said probably. He is the best isolation scorer in the league. And as a result, like a guy like Ibaka would be incredible on a team that asked him to set the pick and then vary between rolling and popping. The Thunder don't need a guy who's going to roll to the basket and throw down a vicious dunk the way, you know, we've seen Towns and Rubio play off each other. That's that's just slugging up what Russ wants to do. So, you know, if they if 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 he were in a different team that needed a different offensive player, I think he'd be far more effective. It is sort of an issue where it's almost like he's too good for the role that they need him to be in, and so therefore he's inherently going to be underused. A little like maybe Kevin Love was last year for the for the Cavs, and uh, I'm glad to see the Cavs have rectified that. But that's something that they I think Donovan is going to have to answer, is how do we get the most that we can out of Serge Ibaka? Because he seems to be too good to be producing so little. That's a fascinating parallel. And the other part of respect is... You have to respect that the if, if a person is open, that the person is going to make the pass to make that kill you. And so when Chris Paul has the ball and DeAndre Jordan is breaking to the basket, you need to be scared because Chris Paul will get DeAndre Jordan the ball and DeAndre Jordan will put it in the, in the basket if that, if that opportunity comes to pass. When Russ is being Russ, you don't have to worry about that in the same way because when he gets the ball downhill and let's say he's at the free throw line, he's not looking for the same thing that Chris Paul is looking for. Which is, you know, it sounds like a, a, it sounds like a massive criticism on Russ, but it's really not because he's very good at what he does. Sure, or, yeah, it's it's just it's just a di- it's just a different way of playing, and I mean, Russ, that's yeah. just who he is. And while it would be it would be great if Westbrook could do what Chris Paul does in that specific circumstance, having him do that while still maintaining everything that makes him so special is almost an impossible ask. It's possible because certain guys have done it, but it's functionally impossible. I feel almost guilty saying this, but I am glad that we got to see Russell Westbrook play half a season on a straight-up, otherwise bad team. Because it was amazing last year to watch when he had no other, anything even close to, he didn't even have Ibaka and he didn't have Durant. And it was just like, we get to see what Russell Westbrook completely unleashed looks like. And it's so insane. And it's not always good insane. It's it's sometimes it was a bad insane at times, but you know, it he's a guy who his full scale abilities are so crazy that inherently even just playing with Durant, even when they're playing well together, he's limiting himself a lot. And I you know, we saw Durant go unleashed when Russ was out two years ago and it basically got that month got Durant or, or so got Durant the MVP. With that said, it was still he still felt like the Kevin Durant we see every day, and I, I certainly do miss that about Russ watching him this year versus last year. Last year, just no holds barred. I'm an insane person with insane skills and insane athleticism, and no one can stop me. You don't get to see that when Durant's playing. If Free Darko ever does another book, I would be happy to write a chapter with you on Russell Westbrook's Allen Iverson season. If Free Darko does a book, let me tell you, Beth Lim Scholes has taken Russell Westbrook. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Oh, God, am I going to have to fight him for it? 
because he'd win. Hi. <laughs> oh, God, I just realized that. No one's been on the Russ bandwagon longer than me, but he's been on it stronger than I have, so he wins. <laughs> I, mean, I knew, yeah, I knew yeah, Russ yeah. in college. Like, I mean, I didn't yeah. know him well. We weren't friends. But, like, I remember this actually – I don't think I've ever told this story on this podcast. When, I, when he was a freshman, I was, I think, a junior in college, and the first game they played in was against, like, Azusa Pacific or something like that. And you saw it. He was a bench player, and you're, and I turned to one of my friends who will probably listen to this podcast and said, we both said, this guy's going to be the best NBA player on this team. And that was a team that made the Final Four, and Russ was a bench player. And he, you could see it then. And it was crazy, though, because his for people, Lee Jenkins wrote a great piece on this. His path is so unbelievable for a star player in the NBA. Three-star recruit. Three-star recruit Three star. who, going into his senior year, I believe his best offer was at Wyoming. Yeah. And actually, yep. another funny thing, I actually pitched a story about that to SI two weeks before Lee Jenkins' article came out. I had no <laughs> idea he was writing it and was crestfallen that it came out. Yeah. But Lee's so, was the best. My own rough story is talking to scouts during Russ's freshman year. Uh, I was writing for NBADraft.net, doing a lot of draft analysis, and I was talking to people, and there was a consensus that the people who saw UCLA play were essentially just saying Russell Westbrook's the best player on this team, mm-hmm. exactly like you did. And they were this was before his freshman year, and the, the praise was so ridiculous. And they basically... Ben Howland, who is a very good coach for what college coaches are expected to do, which is backward um, in a lot of ways, but <laughs> I'll stand by Ben Howland as a very good coach. He he basically told Russ, uh, according to the people who I was talking to, he basically told Russ, we don't need you to do that because we're too good to to like have you as a freshman sort of mess things up for us, which is such a, you know, if we're, I mean, I guess this is pulling this conversation full circle. Like if we're talking about coaches who want to win games versus coaches who want to develop players, like they, but he knew who the most talented player on his team was and intentionally told him, you're going to mess things up for us sometimes. You're probably going to cost us a win or two. That's not as important as developing you as a player. And I'll, like I said, I will stand up for Ben Howland. He produced a lot of NBA players in addition to winning a lot of games and making three consecutive Final Fours. That's still the, that right there is the problem with college basketball, that uh, from, a, from a grander scheme of developing the basketball world, and that's why, like, I, I think we both would like to see a world where our players are, are better equipped for their future rather than for helping some some guy who gets paid millions of dollars while they don't get paid a dime win games. Agreed. And what makes the context of that so crazy and also somewhat justifiable for Howland is that this was a UCLA squad that had just come off a of Final Four. They lost to Florida in the national championship game. That that year was talented enough that they would make the Final Four again and lose to Florida again. And then the year that Russ kind of became more, more Russ, <laughs> then they, they went and beat a Memphis and lost to a Memphis team full of ineligible players in a game that I'll be bitter about for the rest of my life. 
Ah, uh, yes. But, a, well. but a, a question I wanted to ask you, because it ties in with Ben Howland, a, a sub- subject I can talk about ad nauseum because he was the coach of my entire college career, is ties back to going back to the Lakers, where we talked about originally, is I personally feel that coaches like Ben Howland are very successful, but I don't think they should, they're, they're good long-term in glamour markets. And this is why I don't think that the Lakers should hire Thibodeau, is that I think in glamour markets, where teams, where players are just going to be interested in going there anyway, you want to get coaches that are really fun to play for because that's what keeps you in the mix for the Durants and the Westbrooks of the world. Thibodeau is fascinating. And, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily – I mean, I think that applies far more in college. Let me just start out by saying that. Agreed. Ben Howland at Pitt was an awesome fit. And he built the program, and he was super successful and, and, you know – Jamie Dixon basically just continued doing it with a little less of an asshole streak. With that said, and, and I think Ben Howland at Mississippi State will do very well. And UCLA was the wrong place because, like, they, like, do you remember while he was at UCLA making final four runs, Bill Plasky was arguing that he doesn't have enough glamour, that he, his style's boring. It was yeah. during, like, the, the middle of the final four runs, Bill Plasky would write a column, like, once every, every month or so, just saying, God, I wish I still liked watching UCLA basketball, and that's just the mentality of, of, of those those markets. But I think in the NBA, you are right, and I and I actually think the NBA world is becoming a little more like the college world, and that recruiting is more important now. And uh, that's an interesting point. You know, Thibodeau, I would I would turn down Thibodeau to the to the Lakers, regardless. And I think Tibbs is a great coach. It's just not the right fit for him um, in a lot of ways, but. I wouldn't want to hand over offensive-minded talents like Russell and and uh, Randall to a coach like Thibodeau. I'd rather have an offensive-minded coach whose whose game plan is going to be maximizing them. That's why Tibbs needs to go to Toronto. Right now, Toronto would be fine if if why would they fire Dwayne Casey right now? <laughs> I, mean, I, I just want if, you know, I just want Valanciunas. To, I, I feel like Tibbs is the guy to unlock Valanciunas's defensive potential. <laughs> And it's if funny he, because and if he hasn't, hasn't it seemed like Casey's going to get fired at any moment for like since Ujiri took over. Yes, and Casey just keeps winning enough games to to hold on, and it's hard to argue against it. But you know, it does create a potential cycle of, and the Wizards are going through the same thing with Randy Whitman. You know, our, if we kind of aren't sure if this guy's a good coach, but he keeps winning enough games, at what point can we take the step forward as a franchise? If the Wizards don't hire Kevin Ollie next summer, they should just fire everyone. <laughs> it's just straight up. I, I don't even care if it if it makes a one percent difference. If they don't hire Kevin Ollie, fire everyone. Wow, that's that's wow. what it is. I mean, also, I think Kevin Ollie would be a good uh, among among college coaches. I think there's a possibility that he could be a good NBA coach, partially because he has that benefit of being a good NBA player recently enough that players remember him. And Kevin Durant played with him. Hey, Kevin Durant. Yeah. Well, we can talk about him forever. But you're, but yeah, I, you're I, throwing I, Kevin Durant and Kevin Ollie on the on the Wizards. No, I I didn't I didn't <laughs> I know, say Kevin Durant on the Wizards at all. I said the Wizards need to hire Kevin Ollie for reasons <laughs> that are relate to the man that you just named, but are not necessarily exclusively that. Well, pretty much. But yeah, it's 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 interesting though because if you read. Uh, a long piece by Jorge Castillo sitting Castillo sitting down with uh, for the Washington Post sitting down with Whitman. It became very obvious to me that the new 
Randy Whitman small ball lineup in his mind, or at least what he's willing to tell people is it's not about analytics for sure. It's not even about a modern NBA look the way it is for, say, Steve Clifford, who has spent the entire summer extolling the value of three-pointers. It's about the roster he was given. Like, Ernie Grunfeld almost tricked Randy Whitman into playing small ball because he took away Kevin Serafin, who was the most reliable post defender, and didn't add any big men and added a bunch of wing players. So (laughs) it was almost like that was what was required to get Randy Whitman to commit to playing small ball was give a roster that he has no choice with. And, uh, and and he's still doing it with a power forward who I don't trust to shoot threes. Right. Well, yeah, he's still starting Chris Humphreys, although part of that could be that Jared Dudley's not where he wants to be. If Correct. Jared Dudley was as healthy as he was last year and playing like he was last year, I'd like to think that Porter and Dudley would be the starting forwards, but I make no guarantees when Whitman's involved. Making no guarantees when Randy Whitman is involved is always the right tact. <laughs> anything, anything else you'd like to talk about? No, no, I think that's that's about it. So well, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Thanks again to Adi for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Sporting News, and you can read all the work he edits at the Sporting News, which is sportingnews.com slash NBA, or you can read the whole site. It's a great site. I'm a little bit biased, of course. You should also follow him on Twitter. He has less followers than he should. It's Adi Joseph, A-D-I-J-O-S-E-P-H, and he also has a Facebook page, which is his name plus NBA. Actually, very similar to mine. So I love talking to him. I thought it was a, a really fun conversation. And what what I always like with people who I know that I can have, have a good conversation with is to really let it go where it's going to go. And so when I asked the first question of what he thought was the biggest story, I honestly never anticipated he was going to say Kobe. And he did. And I thought that was one of the more insightful conversations I've ever had on him. And I've, I've had a lot of him offline. He's a player that legitimately fascinates me. So I hope I hope you enjoyed it. I'm trying to do some cool stuff in the next couple weeks. As you know, or if you if you see the episode numbers on this, we're getting close to a nice little round number, and I'm hoping to do something for special for that. Still working on the logistics there, and it's been so much fun. I mean, I love doing Real GM Radio. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe however you want to subscribe to it, and also leave an iTunes rating, something that is important to this show and the Dunk Down podcast that I do with Nate Duncan is that those ratings really help us. I I don't exactly know what's in the black box that are iTunes ratings, but we know that reviews are a very important part of that. So if you like it, definitely do that. Also, if you like it, tell other people you do, whether that's on Twitter or wherever else, honestly. And that is is really wonderful. You can also follow me on Twitter or ask me any questions at Daniel Rue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also hit me up on Facebook. I, it's actually where I co- coalesce everything, including with the work I do for the Sporting News. That's Danny LaRue NBA. It's also on my on my Twitter account. You can email. I have an email account for feedback and things like that, which is NBA at gmail.com. And I really do. I, re- I read everything that I get. I respond to as much as I can. And it's a lot of fun. One other thing, and I am speaking entirely for myself on this. I'm not speaking for either my employer who puts out this podcast or my employer who was partially represented by the person who was on on the podcast this time. And I I wanted to talk a little bit about Grantland. And it was a wonderful site. There were so many amazing people that were there. And what really galvanized all of this for me is the idea that we need to figure out a better way to monetize what gives people enjoyment 
on the internet in particular. And I'm 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 an econ major. It's it's something that I think about a fair amount, and I've never really come up with a clear answer on. But I think that one of the ways to do it is is maybe, and I'm still working on a way of potentially doing it for this podcast, is doing something through donations. Because I don't love the idea of subscriptions. I don't like the. I mean, in certain circumstances, obviously, for getting reliable content, I think that it it can be worth it. I think it can be a good thing. I like the idea of you know building an audience. And then, you know, having them maybe contribute to help keeping it going because the, the, if you want to call it the dirty little secret, but the the thing with this business is that it costs money to do everything that we're going to do. You know, if, if you want people to take the time that it, that it takes to watch the games and to do the analysis, you're, they're going to have to be doing it in a way that they can put food on their table and put a roof over their heads. And so one thing I, I wrote on Twitter the day that Grant Lynn went down was, and obviously their situation was different because they were part of a, a worldwide leader conglomerate, which was a part of a bigger conglomerate that is Disney, is if you like something, try to make sure that you're that you're doing something that enables them to, to make money. So for me, the way that I phrased that was in terms of turning ad blocker off, because that is a way that the site can make money off of doing that. Because as an econ major, one of the truisms that you hear both in that and outside of it is there is no free lunch. And the way that I would describe that in, in this context is if you are doing nothing to keep the things that you enjoy to, to make them money, then just like how I think great players who take too much money can't complain if their team is bad, you have no right to complain if that thing that you love goes away. And I am as guilty of this as, as anybody. You know, there are things that I have, you know, I, I try, especially, you know, when I was younger, you can do that. And right now it's actually really easy because most things are free and the things that aren't free, like ESPN Insider, which is fabulous, aren't a ton of money. And the amount of time that that we spend on for me on Insider with people like Kevin Pelton and Emil Hassan, they have such great writers. You can do that, and I will. I'm going to work to try to figure out a way to do that. I'm pushing Nate Duncan, and obviously there are advertisers on that show, and that's a way to do it too. Because really, the idea with all of this is sustainability, and there are so many wonderful people doing wonderful work, and. Part of what has made this harder for me, with Grantland in particular, is becoming more engaged with the writing community that exists. It it, may, it makes it more human for you. And so these are people who I, I'm more connected with. You know, Maybe, maybe I, I know a little bit more about their lives, and I obviously know about the work that they do. And you know it's hard. It's hard to think about anybody. I mean, there are a lot of people who are struggling, but it's always it's all it's hard when it's when it's people you know and people who you respect and things like that. So there are some great jobs that are out there, and I'm I'm thankful every day for the opportunities that I have, and I want to make sure that everybody who is worth your time and everybody who you enjoy has the opportunity. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to make more my my purpose, both for myself but mostly for others, because. This is an amazing business, and I'm I've done a lot of different things in my life, and I'm I'm incredibly happy that I've had the opportunity to pursue this in the way that I have. And there, I I know how hard it can be, and I know that I I had more flexibility to do it than almost anybody because of the other things I've done. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, I th- I thank you guys all so much for being along for the ride, and thanks for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.
Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how.